Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for July 13th, 2021. I'm Glenn Fleischman, in for Jackson Bird, who is on vacation. Archaeologists dig up a massive cache of 15th century metal printing type in South Korea. A baby beaver is born in Exmoor for the first time in centuries. What if ice cream, but also macaroni and cheese. A video game breaks records and may indicate a sales bubble. And Nick Cage's pig. Probably good. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. 1,600 pieces of metal characters used for printing were unearthed in South Korea recently. This discovery of movable type characters that can be used to print, rearranged into different words and used again, has excited scholars of early printing. That's not because they offer the first archaeological proof of printing before Johannes Gutenberg, the so-called inventor of printing with movable type, that has long existed, but because of the sheer quantity and diversity of characters. While the type still needs to be authenticated, it's believed to date to 1443. It would be the largest set of early metal ever discovered, even though the use of metal type pieces is recorded in Korea by 1377 and almost certainly before that, based on examination of surviving books. Only two pieces of type are thought to predate this latest discovery. The type and other artifacts were uncovered while archaeological investigation was underway at a site under development in Insadong, an area that was off-limits to construction until 2013. The Korea Herald described the area as, quote, a focal point of traditional culture in the northern part of Seoul, end quote. The cache was found underneath where a house had stood in an area populated by middle-class residents and government employees in the 1400s. Oh Kyung Tech, head of the Pseudo Research Institute of Culture, told the Korea Times, quote, It seems that a person buried them during an emergency and failed to recover them. We have recovered many relics buried in a similar manner during wars in the 16th century. End quote. The type uncovered comprises 1,000 pieces in Chinese characters and 600 in Hangul, also known as the Korean alphabet. Hangul was developed by King Sejong the Great in 1443, which is part of what is driving the dating of this type. The Chinese have the earliest surviving accounts of and examples of printing, one dating back over 1,800 years. Examples in the first millennia of the Common Era were xylographic, or based on carving wood. Typically, an entire page or large parts of a page were carved. Then they were inked and paper, linen, or other material pressed onto it. In 1040 CE, a pretty precise date, a man named Bisheng apparently developed movable type using both wood and cast ceramic pieces. The wood was a dead end and none of his ceramic type survives, but descriptions of his process go into great detail. Developments proceeded over decades and centuries in both China and Korea that led to using sand molds into which brass was poured to cast brass type. Koreans started using brass type as early as 1234, but there's no copy extant of the book known to be printed with it. The earliest surviving book printed this way, the Jikchi, dates to 1377. Europe was fairly far behind. The Chinese had also invented paper, though the invention leaked through invasions and the capture of papermakers. European papermaking started in earnest in the 12th century in Italy. The Chinese and Koreans knew how to cast metal type and print on paper with it. So how did Gutenberg and Europeans in general get the credit for centuries that followed? They made it up in volume and by using a simple alphabet. The Korean king who introduced Hangul hoped to encourage literacy 
but his efforts also made it more ideal for movable type because it had just a few dozen basic and combination characters compared to the Chinese or Han characters, which numbered in the thousands for basic literacy in that era and mostly still today. Despite this discovery of complete sets of Hangul metal type, it was probably an anomaly. Hangul offended scholars and produced controversy. While it caught on to some extent, there was extensive resistance to it. In 1504, an anonymous party, possibly trying to disguise his upper-class status, published a document in Hangul criticizing the contemporary king. That led to that king banning Hangul and having all books that contained it burned. It wasn't until around 1600 that Hangul became used more widely again. The lack of interest in Hangul by scholars followed by this ban may have both stifled a growth in printing with metal types and erased historical traces that could have revealed more extensive use. Gutenberg apparently had no knowledge of earlier movable type printing from Asia, though xylographic printing was common enough. It's extremely likely he didn't steal printing from China or Korea. It seems more like improvements in metallurgy and refinement in metalsmithing and the production of coins in mints gave him some key ideas. His family was connected to the mint in Mainz, Germany, and he may have learned goldsmithing, though that wasn't common for a member of his social class. Gutenberg had the same advantage that Hangul offered. Latin and German had just a couple dozen characters. Combine that with diacritical marks, numerals, and punctuation, and it's still a very small set of unique characters to cast and print from. To emulate scribal handwriting, Gutenberg's workshop ultimately created alternative versions of many lowercase letters for fitting lines neatly, as well as ligatures, or common combinations of characters like F-I, C-H, and S-T. Even with all that, the total character count across Gutenberg's Bible is well below 300 unique characters. Gutenberg had to develop some method of producing lots of these pieces of type that could be easily set squarely and levelly together for printing without moving, probably using something that was later called a hand mold, and if not a hand mold, something that similarly allowed the mass production in the hundreds of thousands of pieces of type over just a few years during the printing of the Bible. No printers in China or Korea seem to have come up with this hand-casting idea, although the new discovery may put the lie to that. Gutenberg, or his workshop, also had to create a press, probably using a wine press as a model, adapt ink, prepare paper to accept that particular ink, and figure out how to align pages to name just a few problems. But the combination of innovations he came up with could be readily learned and reproduced. Mostly unnamed printers in China and Korea deserve the credit for being first, Gutenberg's intervention was producing a pre-industrial process that lit a fire and spread printing across Europe and then around the world. It was reported today that a baby beaver was born in Exmoor, England. A baby beaver is called a kit. Now, beyond kits being cute, why is this a story? It's the first time a beaver has given birth in Exmoor for four centuries. That's right. Beavers were hunted to extinction throughout the sceptered isles for what BBC News described as their, quote, fur glands and meat in the 16th century. Now they're being reintroduced. In Exmoor, the birth took place about six weeks ago and was just confirmed at the Halnacote Estate in Somerset, run by the National Trust. The National Trust is an organization in the United Kingdom that preserves historic houses, mills, estates, factories, villages, and so forth. Part of the Trust's mission is to protect wild landscapes and to restore degraded sites. The spot at which two Eurasian beavers were released in January 2020 is a densely forested 2.7 hectare or 6.7 acre site. It has a muddy pond fed by a river. 
that occasionally caused flooding downstream. The beavers were taken from a successful reintroduction program in Scotland. Originally unnamed, the mother was dubbed Grills after Bear Grills, a wilderness survival expert who has had a number of UK television series. The reason? Her tenacity. There's a second reintroduction effort underway by the National Trust elsewhere in England in Blackdown between West Sussex and Surrey. A colony has established itself with no intervention in the ironically named River Otter in Devon, and the UK government has separately placed beavers in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. For those without an atlas at hand, those four locations are all in the south of England, west or south of London. The project's goal was for the beavers to thin out the trees, build dams that would hold in silt and reduce the risk of flooding, and provide niches for other wildlife to settle into. They've done a phenomenal job. The beavers have taken enough trees out to convert the habitat into a more open wetland. Otters have been spotted and plants are growing that required more light. The hope is that felled wood and trunks left behind will become attractive to bats, owls, woodpeckers, and invertebrates. The kit hasn't been named yet, but the National Trust will be asking for suggestions. UK organizations, having learned from previous naming competitions, will likely not put it up for a vote, lest balloting picks Beaver McBeaverface as the kit's name. The following sounds like the worst thing in the world to me, but what do I know? It'll probably be a smash success. You'll be able to buy Kraft mac and cheese in ice cream form across the U.S. from the dessert maker Van Leeuwen at $12 a pint. It's coming soon. The New York Post quotes Emily Violette, a senior associate brand manager for Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, saying, quote, We know that there is nothing more refreshing on a hot summer day than ice cream. That is why we wanted to combine two of the most iconic comfort foods to create an ice cream with the unforgettable flavor of Kraft Macaroni and Cheese we all grew up with, end quote. I mean, no, this is not correct. Have brands simply lost it after analyzing how we ate during pandemic? Hey, we need comfort food, which is ice cream, and separately, Kraft macaroni and cheese. What if ice cream, but also mac and cheese? No? Uh, All right, this is ridiculous of me to assert. Ice cream comes in all sorts of flavors. Now, I particularly enjoy mochi ice cream with red bean paste or a matcha flavoring. Entire ice cream shops are devoted to non-traditional, often savory flavors. I put mayonnaise on my french fries like the Belgians do. I am not one to judge on flavors. And the sweet and salty tastes of salted caramel is now a standard ice cream flavor. All right, there's no pasta in this mac and cheese ice cream. That might be a step too far. Speaking of forms of nostalgia, there's nostalgia and then there's nostalgia. A mint sealed copy of Super Mario 64 from 1996 sold for $1.5 million at auction last weekend, including the auction house fees. This is the highest price ever paid for a single video game at auction. The buyer remains anonymous. The price has raised a lot of questions that the website Kotaku has delved into. This copy is nearly perfect, rated 9.8 A++ by Wata, a firm that provides quality grading for video games and which worked with Heritage Auctions that ran the sale. Wata says this is likely the best quality that will ever be recorded for Super Mario 64, as to achieve a higher score, the game would have to have both perfect manufacturing and a perfect condition-preserved item. A collector has no control over the manufacturing process of the original game packaging. 
Kotaku notes discrepancies in the price between this sale and other comparable ones. Quote, a 9.4 A plus graded sealed copy of the game sold for only $38,400 in heritage auctions this past January and a 9.2 A graded copy sold for just $7,500 there last year. Other copies of the game in similar conditions sold just below $10,000 on eBay earlier this year as well. End quote. Video game historian Kelsey Lewin of the Video Game History Foundation tweeted, quote, two genuinely suspect things about this. Despite a lack of population reports, there are many known sealed Super Mario 64 first prints. Auctions and other speculative items actually went relatively low this week, with one matte sticker Mario selling for only $3,600, end quote. Pat Contry, a collector and historian, tweeted, referencing WADA, the firm that does the grading of video games, quote, this quotes, pump, unquote, is natural and dangerous long-term. 99% of these games are not as rare as these purchase prices justify. The price increases are meteoric, and we do not know how many copies of each title exists since WATA does not release population reports, end quote. This sale breaks the previous record of $870,000 for a 1987 NES copy of Legend of Zelda set just two days earlier. And the previous highest-priced auction before that was just in April 2021, in which Super Mario Brothers sold for $660,000. I mean, most people just want to play the game. Just a few items in closing. I love Nick Cage and his movies, and I'm always amazed at the variety he chooses. He, like Michael Caine, obviously considers himself to be a working actor, albeit one who can afford to buy a dinosaur skull, find out that it was stolen from Mongolia, and return it there and not get a refund. That sounds like a Nick Cage movie. Cage will seemingly make any film, and some will be watched in a hundred years' time, and some can only be watched with one's jaw dangling open, saying repeatedly, what, what is this? When I saw the trailer for his latest movie, called simply Pig, I thought it was going to be one of the latter, and the trailer showed Cage being extremely Cage. However, I will probably have to eat my mocking tweets, possibly with a side order of fake bacon. The Onions AV Club saw the film and said, quote, Pig is considerably smarter and more ardent than it appears at first glance, and unearths treasures that are barely evident on the surface level, end quote. Okay, now I'm looking forward to it, and, and in a totally different way. A palate cleanser to help end your day. I just encountered videos for the first time of a remarkable beach creature. It's a wind-powered machine with no motor, no electronics, no mechanics. It can walk down a beach, store wind for later use, and avoid stepping in the water. It's the Strandbeest, created by Theo Johnson of the Netherlands. That's Strandbeest, like strand, plus B-E-E-S-T which means basically beach animal. Do yourself a favor and visit strandbeast.com, S-T-R-A-N-D-B-E-E-S-T.com, and in the show notes, or search for it online. What a great pleasure awaits you. Now, I have two pronunciation corrections from yesterday when I was discussing expensive houseplants and I spoke the name of the species that sold for over $19,000. My wife, as noted, a horticulturist, told me it's actually pronounced Raphidophora tetrasperma. Now, I pronounce it a different way. I'm not going to perpetuate that, so say it with me. Raphidophora tetrasperma. And while I did tell you the sun has a bow wave in front of it as it plies its way through interstellar space, I later referred to this as a bow wave. It's bow, like the bow of a boat, not bow, like something you put in your hair or the face of a bow. 
And that's it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Glenn Fleischman, and you can contact me with stories or thoughts on Twitter at Glenn F. That's G-L-E-N-N-F like Frank. If you'd like to see my research into type history artifacts and a current project, go to tinytypemuseum.com or visit my Flickr account where I'm also Glenn F. I'll be back tomorrow and for the next two weeks while Jackson Bird is on his well-deserved vacation. Jackson, if you've listened this far, enjoy yourself. <laughs>